Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Rokan. K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s. I'm Richard Parker. Quite a reference. We'll talk about that in just a moment. If you catch that reference, it's a big anniversary coming up. But first, let me tell you that this podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing to drive your overall business success because they believe that today's online world is your opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. What the hell for? It'd just be more bullshit. This man set us up. Dad, I'm sorry, but I don't know what the hell's happening. It's all right, Eddie, I do. What the fuck are you talking about? That lump of shit's working with the LAPD. I don't have the slightest fucking idea what you're talking about. Joe, Joe, I don't know what you think you know, but you're wrong. Like hell I am. Joe, trust me on this. You've made a mistake. He's a good kid. That is one of the most important films in film history, let alone the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs uh, originally premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 1992. My mathematics tell me that was 30 years ago, wow. Ro. Oh. And uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, you know, has gone on to make, yeah, some of the most influential and iconic films of the last 30 years. And when that came out, you know, there was a lot of buzz about him already because he had written a screenplay for a movie called True Romance. And he was working on a screenplay for a movie called Natural Born Killers. Uh, those movies were directed by Tony Scott and eventually Oliver Stone, respectively. But Reservoir Dogs was Quentin's original baby. He, he had started writing this when he was famously working at the video store, absorbing every movie ever made. And this has elements of so many, so many films in it. I rewatched it recently, Ro, and I, I, it, it's just so perfectly done. You know, just from start to finish, the Reservoir Dogs, the use of the pop music yep. with Stephen Wright, the comedian, as the K Billy Super Sounds DJ, and the way it was incorporated, which was kind of a fresh thing. Now it's in every movie out there. You know, every thriller is going to have some pop songs and every right. TV series, but that was kind of a unique thing. Uh, and there were movies in the 1970s that were sure. tr- trying sure. to introduce pop songs for the for the sake of the pop songs. As a matter of fact, they were going to release a pop song. I think you know the most obscene version of that is in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. We're in the middle yeah, of the yeah, 1890s yeah, yeah. or early 1900s or whatever that was. Yeah, you all of a sudden have to pop into some 1970s mellow pop song. You're like, yeah, what? raindrops uh, keep falling on my head by B.J. Thomas while right. Paul Newman is on a bicycle. Right. It was. It, it was what. Uh, Roger Ebert called the obligatory, I believe the semi-obligatory musical interlude, you know, the montage almost, if you will. But, you know, the opening scene in Reservoir Dogs, we don't even know who these guys are yet. You know, we know they're going to, they look like they could be trouble. Uh, They're all talking about Madonna's Like a Virgin, and then they mention the the DeFranco's heartbeat, it's a love beat, and they talk about the K-Billy's super sounds, and then we go into all these other great pop moments, most memorably, uh, Stuck in the Middle with You, as Michael Madsen does his dance and then uses his switchblade to cut off the ear of the cop who has been uh, 
kidnapped by the bank robbers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people don't know. They should, obviously should know by now. The Reservoir Dogs is a group of, of bank robbers, Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink, Mr. White, Mr. Brown, Mr. Blonde, etc. And the movie really got made, Row. Uh, Tarantino was going to do some sort of little indie film. And again, 30 years ago, you couldn't shoot it on your iPhone. So even, you know, if you did it yourself, it was going to cost ten or fifteen or $20,000. And they were workshopping it. And Harvey Keitel got involved. That's how that movie got made. Because Harvey Keitel, then and now and forever, is a is a force. Right. And the fact that he had signed on to do it. Because you know, the other actors, had, you know, we knew a little bit about Steve Buscemi and Michael Madsen, I mentioned. But they were at the beginnings of their careers. Harvey Keitel had already done some serious shit by right. then. Right. Oh, yeah. Let me go back to Tarantino and the use of music. No one has ever used music better. A lot of people have been using music forever. And, and I don't want to take anything away from Martin Scorsese because he uses music very well. Somehow, some way, he has been eclipsed by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I mean, you, you make a good point, though. You know, Scorsese, you know, he well, he famously, you know, in films uh, that preceded Reservoir Dogs, you know, was using rock music. And then even more so. I mean, you know, he loves, like, the, the Rolling Stones, you know, kind of the classic rock stuff. Uh, Derek and the Dominoes, where, you know, we're seeing all the bodies in, in uh, Goodfellas showing up, right, to the piano part of Layla. This is long before Eric Clapton lost his mind and now has recently said that everybody who's getting vaxxed is under hypnosis, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> under hypnosis. But back to Reservoir Dogs. To be. Uh, yeah, the, you know, just the way the music was 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 woven in there, and he's done that anachronistic thing. Is that what you call it? It's an anachronistic thing where music from a different time will be in a western. You know, right, he's right, done right, that right. with Django and things yep. like that. Uh, but it was just beautifully done in Reservoir Dogs, and you know, this was kind of you could see that this could have almost been a stage play because so much of it takes place in that warehouse which is actually like i think a morgue that they filmed that in which has since been torn down which is a shame because they could have tours you could have the reservoir dogs <laughs> experience i'm mr orange i'm bleeding out you know <laughs> but then we get flashbacks we see how tim roth as the undercover cop wins the trust of everybody we see how the, the gang is recruited you know they don't know each other all that great stuff and we then we eventually even see well not eventually we, throughout the film snippets of the robbery but they really didn't have the budget to film like a a, a heat type movie, you know, robbery sequence. So it's just little flashes and snippets. So it's also just brilliantly done. And he's uh, also spending his money on the music rights too. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think Kaitel even helped with some of that. I know he helped, like he was flying actors in for auditions and stuff because he was the one, you know, telling these other actors, you got to do this, you know, you got to take a look at this guy. He recognized the right, you know, the writing with Tarantino and he's a savant. Because they say like his scripts are always like 400 pages and there's all kinds of typos and grammatical things. He's dyslexic. But his writing is brilliant. And yes, he borrows from a million other movies. Who gives a shit? You know, there, to me, yes, people say, well, this is also, this is, you know, there, people have listed 30 movies that influenced Reservoir Dogs. Well, I could list you 300 movies that Reservoir Dogs influenced. Right. After that, for a while there, everybody wanted to do their Tarantino movie. And, you know, I, I love the fact that he is actually done different genres you know he's done his westerns and he did his world war ii revisionist and glorious bastards and i think once upon a time in hollywood might be his best film of all time and once once he was given you know the clout because these movies won oscars and made a lot of money he is you know he, and look look at this look at the actors who appear in his films you know right. jamie fox and leo and right. margot robbie and brad pitt with his oscar and stuff people but, cannot wait to get in yeah because it, it's like he's like you know, he's like the kick-ass killer version of Woody Allen, 
if I could invoke another name that right. maybe has fallen out of favor. But, you know, Woody Allen, there's no denying his writing. And every actor was, would say from about 19, what, 75 till well, even 10 years ago. That, I think yeah. from the late 1960s. I mean, as soon yeah, as they wanted to be in Woody Allen. Yeah. Movie. And again, you know, you'd see actors winning Oscars, you know, because the writing was so good. And the same thing with Tarantino. You, you know, you see actors always saying, I'd love to work with him. So Reservoir Dogs was 30 years ago, Ro. Have you been to the Sundance Film Festival? I have not, but okay. I have a number of stories from it. Oh, really? Yes. Can you tell any of them? Yeah, I think so. I guess this is where I want to kind of go with this, yeah. is that Sundance Film Festival went from this like indie, important kind of, like all these young artists were going to emerge from it, and it became as corporate as anything else, and yeah, that is yeah. because of Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein yeah, was yeah. the guy who brought all of the Weinstein product to Sundance to get it launched, essentially. And you got to remember, the Sundance Festival takes place in Utah, right. which is, and then especially more so than now, when it first started, very dry, right? Yeah, I mean, well, these people weren't out there. To, a ski resort. Hard to party. You know, but, but not like a, now that has changed as well, too, because then everybody was building, you know, these million-dollar homes in the mountains and stuff. But, you know, a, a, a ski resort. Sundance, you know, it's the Sundance Institute, which was founded by Robert Redford, to go back to Butch Cassidy and the right. Sundance Kid. And Robert Redford, who's as mainstream as, as it gets, wanted to champion independent struggling young filmmakers, actors, everybody in the business. So you're absolutely right about that, Ro. And then it became this thing. Uh, and, and Harvey Weinstein, yeah, you know, he would he would discover Clerks and make Kevin Smith a star and, right. you know, movies it's a like way that. of him spending a little bit of money going out there, getting all this buzz, yeah. because there was also this entertainment media that was growing apace with this indie film festival. Yeah. And there was a time when, and now, so I went out there, you know, five or six years uh, in the early 2000s. And actually that was when it really had pivoted and become this thing where Entertainment Tonight and Access Hollywood right. and everybody was setting up there. And stars were going that did not have movies there. All Just the to be seen. I went there. The, uh, it was a year I went there, Ro. And, you know, Britney Spears was there and she did not have any movies out. She ended up doing a couple of the movies. And I remember writing a piece about these two bratty teenage girls who were tearing up the town. Their names were Paris and Nikki Hilton. They were 19 and 17 years old. And that was the beginning of that shit. And all the, you know, kind of the locals were all wearing <laughs> yeah. buttons. It's about the movies and everything. And it, it kind of got out of control. And then it's had its ebbs and flows through the years where they've gotten back to that. Um, I'll tell you this about Robert Redford, who's, you know, a hero of mine. Because I mean, the guy, you know, you look at the movies he made, you know, mm -hmm. has made from the 60s all the way through. I mean, he is a movie star and, you know, became a great director as well. And I had a chance and we always said, that, I had the opportunity to sit down. And there was a dinner where I got to sit across from him and we got plastered. And you never think of Robert Redford as being out of control. He wasn't out of control, but he had a, we, we had all the wine in Park City. And I'll never forget that. It was just an amazing time. Uh, at the end of the night, he told one of his assistants, you're driving. To his credit, <laughs> yeah, you know he's got good. a ranch out there. But I, I do remember like what you're talking about though about the craziness. Like at one point, someone said, "Hey, there's a party at the Hugo Boss house," you know, because everything was labeled and everything was sponsored. And I'm like, "Oh, is Hugo Boss the sponsor?" Like, no, it's Hugo Boss's house. <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, that's a there's, person." There's really a Hugo he's a Boss? person like Calvin Klein. Oh. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that either. No. Just but moment. when you went to the party, it was insane. It wasn't like you, you know, it wasn't like Hugo greeted you at the door. It was like huge security and major stars and paparazzi and gift bags and shit, you know. And I was like, "This is more Hollywood than right. Hollywood." This is right. twenty years ago, right? Right, right. Yeah. And 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 I think it was because all that money kind of poured in. And and Harvey used to 
uh, work that town. Yeah. Like he was the big star. He and his brother were the indie producers. Yeah. Right? I mean, we didn't know he was a monster at the time. He was just a you know gigantic figure who really gamed the, the system. I will say this. There, <laughs> there were people, I think, even at that moment that started to see Harvey. Because I think, and I, I can say this without much fear of contradiction, mm-hmm. that when he would get to Sundance, he would be even wilder. Because mm-hmm. he figured that all of those indie actors and actresses, actresses specifically, uh, needed him. So they yeah. would kiss his ass or, you know, he would <laughs> hit on him in ways that, you know, we you know, Well, you know, since again, people wanted to be in a Miramax film, you know. Right. Gwyneth Paltrow was 24 or something when she did um, uh, Shakespeare in Love and, and won the Academy Award. The stories I would hear back then were just about his horrible temper and his mistreatment of employees and throwing telephones and screaming, you know. I was never in the inner circle. I didn't know this other stuff until it was was reported. But there there was a period, Ro, from the late 80s through the 90s where there was almost always a buzz movie out of Sundance. And it right. was a big deal. Sex, Lies, and Videotape was uh, uh, Soderbergh, right, mm-hmm. um, early on. And that was, you know, raw and frank and, you know, really – it was 1989. And, and that was the, the debut of a huge talent. Uh, the Blair Witch Project. Now, you remember that one? Yeah. That was in the late 90s. Yeah, and that was the movie that was supposed to be the scariest movie that was ever made, bar none. And somehow, when you have all of that upfront publicity around it and that mystique around it, it never pays off. It didn't pay off for me. Well, you know, I I saw it early on before a lot of the hype. Uh, My former partner, the late, great Roger Ebert, loved it. But that was also because, you know, it was found footage. That was the the genre. It kind of invented. Some of that had been done before, but the whole idea was somebody found, and that's been done like a million times since then. Right. It, it, you know, and I agree with you, you know, about halfway through, you're either buying it or you're not. Right. When you're not, when you go into it not buying it, it makes the film that much less It did very well, but I think a lot of people were like, well, what am I watching here? Like, kid standing in the corner and there's some stick figures and snot coming out of people's mouth. There's a lot of parody videos where people were putting the camera next to their face. I just want to say, if no one finds me, I'm dead. <laughs> that was that was Blair Witch Project. Right now we just have YouTube. Yeah. Now we're going back. I think it was 1990, uh, the documentary Roger and Me, which was Michael Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Roger in there was the GM CEO, Roger Smith, right? And it was all about the closing of uh, auto factories in and around Flint, Michigan, where Michael Moore was from. And it was, you know, we've learned over the years, you know, Michael Moore is a very polarizing figure. But again, documentaries have been done in millions of different ways. But he kind of premiered that, or he kind of uh, debuted, I won't say he invented, but this whole kind of performance art documentary where he put himself in the movie throughout. He made himself the star of the documentary. I'm going to get a meeting with Roger Smith at General Motors. And, I, and you know, when you go back and look at it, he's like berating secretaries and PR people most of the time. He had he made some great points. But then, you know, some of some of his films were great. And some of them were like him just saying, look at how funny and clever I am. Right. And, I'll, and, I, and setting up confrontations with people that were really the gatekeepers and not the bigwigs. But, you know, it was very, very effective. And it was a hugely successful documentary, Roger and Me. And you, again, you've seen that in million times and he, it made him a really rich guy over the years doing that fahrenheit 9-11 all Bowling the rest of columbine yeah. etc etc he's won academy awards and, and, and again you know very polarizing figure i've met him a few times i like him uh you know sometimes you're just like okay you know take it easy here you know he's, he makes he, him the star of, he's the star yeah. of his own movie and well that's, and that's you know, okay i don't mind that and he's super smart but i covered a number of the stories that he did documentaries around and I found some of what he was doing to be cheap, 
shot shortcuts. Yeah, timelines were shifted in ways beyond what normal documentaries would do, and things that you know didn't really happen happened here, and you know stuff wasn't challenged. There it was wasn't a famous like, moment. I'll yeah, give you one yeah, example no, of this yeah. because I don't want to be ad hominem about this, but. Mm-hmm. In Fahrenheit 9-11, he's got this scene of George Bush sitting in the classroom. This is kind of, uh, as people will remember. Uh, when he was reading My Pet Goat to the kids. Right, the the and yeah. they and he just sat there, and they'd come to him, and they'd said something to him, and then he sat there, and he didn't move. And yeah, yeah. They, and, and, and make a more made some deal out of that, like... Uh, that it was somehow insidious that he wasn't moving from there for like twenty three seconds or something. He kind of like showed it in real time. Yeah, and it's and the the reality is they told him stay here. We're moving. You. Right. Yeah. There's no indication they actually told him what had happened, but it was like you know national emergency. We're moving you, and that's there's a whole protocol that comes with. Yeah. He. Yeah. You can say what you want about you know the aftermath and everything, but he was doing exactly what. Right. He had been instructed to do him just processing it and also was in front of a bunch of school children. Right. Didn't like, want to do what was he supposed them. to do? Stand up and go, right. we're under attack. Right. And throw my pet goat up in the air. I mean, <laughs> right. I know. But yeah, that was a cheap shot. And there were there were a yeah. lot of those in the documentaries. But again, credit where it's due, Roger and me launched a whole generation of filmmakers who said, I want to be a crusading documentary filmmaker. And sometimes I think they're not really documentaries, but they're point of view films. And that's fine if you want to do them. If you tell people, this is how I feel, go ahead and make your movie. But it was a huge, huge success at Sundance 32 years ago. Oh my God. All right. I don't want to talk about this anymore. It's making me feel incredibly (laughs) Watch Reservoir Dogs. It's the most uplifting movie about a bunch of killers out there. (laughs) That's true. It's really, really good. If you have not seen it, it is totally worth it. Yeah. All right. Uh, Well, you know, I'm going to make myself feel better and let's talk about Portillo's. The greatest single fast casual cuisine experience you're going to have anywhere on the planet Earth. Right down to the poppy seed bun. You're going to enjoy it so much because it's one of the million great ingredients that Portillo's uses. Whether it's the Italian beef or the sausage or the legendary chocolate cake. That's just all the beginning. Mm-hmm. The fries, the salads, the chicken. I'm telling you, if you have Portillo's. The burger. It, the burger's great. Yes. And, and you can get beer at the Portillo's, too, if you go nice. into the store. Nice. I'm just going to tell you right now. If you have a Portillo's near you and you've not eaten at a Portillo's before, let's say you live in California, Arizona, or Florida, where it's relatively new, you want to check it out. Take the Roe and Roper endorsement here. It's one of the finest experiences you're going to have ever in that kind of a food environment like fast casual you know it's not exactly fast food you can sit down it's nicer but it's super great portillos.com p-o-r-t-i-l-l-o-s.com ask your friends in chicago about it portillos.com It's Thursday. Let's talk about what not to watch. And not the Thursday 3, but the Thursday 4 this week. <laughs> yeah, Ro, we have the Thursday 4 because I don't have anything in the what not to watch category. No clunkers this week. So let's run through four entries that are uh, coming out or about to come out that are re- getting released. And they're all terrific and very, very different. I want to start off with a Netflix series. Now, it's called The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window. And this is a parody of all those uh, series and movies that star... Name actresses playing, and they're almost always based on best-selling novels, right? Mm -hmm. And it's always somebody who has a tragedy in her past, and now she's kind of agoraphobic, doesn't want to leave the house, and she's drinking all the wine in the world and combining that with prescription medications, and then she thinks she sees a murder. 
But did she really see the murder? So this is the parody of that with Kristen Bell playing the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. We love Kristen Bell. And it's really dark and really funny because it takes all those cliches. I mean, her, her the wine she consumes in her house, and you know, the, the backstory is her character... Uh, her daughter was tragically killed on a rainy night, so she's afraid of rain. So like, she can't leave the house anytime it rains, and she's estranged from her husband. And then a handsome doctor moves in across the way. I think he's I don't know, he's British and he's handsome, and he's got he's also he's a widower. He knows tragedy, and he's got a daughter, but he's got a sexy girlfriend. And she thinks she sees the girlfriend get murdered, but then of course when the cops come, there's no body, no blood, no evidence. So it's like, did you just imagine it? And they just take it to these crazy heights. He's got a bowl in her kitchen filled with wine corks that's like 10 feet high. It's like the airplane of this genre, but they play it really straight. Michael Lehman, who directed Heathers, another big, you know, indie hit, directs this. So it's kind of like in the scream genre where it's a parody, but it's played straight down the middle. But Mm -hmm. then you find out, like, for example, okay, so her daughter was murdered, right? We find out that her husband was like an FBI profiler of serial killers, and it was take your daughter to work day. Oh God! And he took oh. his daughter to the to the prison where he was interviewing oh, the guy a guy that eats people, and then he gets a call and he goes, "I gotta leave for a second. He left his daughter in the room with the crazy serial killer. So you know that didn't go well. I mean, so that's just twisted and fun. But if you, you know, it's it's a it's a series where they're all about half hour episodes. It's terrific. All right, the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. Exactly. All right. Uh, hi, I'm Anna. Hi, Anna. The truth is that I drink a lot. And sometimes I mix it with pills. And I'm here because I woke up this morning convinced I'd witnessed a murder. Someone has been murdered. They said you saw a murder. She is batshit crazy. I'm not crazy. (laughs) Okay, so number three of the Thursday Four. It's an HBO documentary called Terry Bradshaw Going Deep. And we we were just talking in the recent podcast about Terry Bradshaw, who's so well-known as kind of, you know, the avuncular... Uh, butt of the jokes, you know, on, on right. the NFL on Fox and has done you know, comedy and movies and TV and stuff. But, you know, as people, a lot of people know, was a great quarterback, Hall of Fame quarterback with the Steelers. What I like about this documentary, Row, is first of all, he did a series of like one man shows in like Branson, you know, like on stage where he's doing the bad country music thing. He can kind of sing. Right, because I thought he was a singer for a while. He had like they? a number nine hit like in the, yeah. in the 80s or something, the 70s. But, and he tells, he's a great storyteller. And he tells all these stories about, he was actually, when he was at Louisiana Tech, he was splitting quarterback time with the Duck Dynasty guy, Phil Robertson, the guy who is went that true? Yeah, it's a true story. And he goes, he tells the story, he goes, this idiot always wanted to go duck hunting. I didn't have any interest in killing any ducks. I just wanted to throw footballs. And then he gets drafted by the Steelers. Famously, the Steelers and the Bears tied for the worst record in the NFL. And there was a coin toss. We were just talking about coin toss. And, of course, the Bears lost. So the Steelers got Terry Bradshaw. And the Bears traded their pick to the Packers. They did, There was no number two. But what I found really interesting about this, and, and I give all the credit in the world to Terry Bradshaw, is he talks at length, not on stage. He talks about a little bit on stage, but in, in present-day interviews about the fact that he has suffered and struggled and battled clinical depression his entire life. Right. And and he's he's talked about it in the past. but He talked about it before anybody talked yeah, about it. Yeah, they show clips from like an interview from 20 years ago, and he says, he goes, 
a, a lot of my friends, and he doesn't name names, but you know it's people from the football world, made fun of him. And yeah. to this day, he goes, they make fun of me. And he, and he talks about also all the jokes about his intelligence or lack thereof, and they still do that. And he says sometimes when he's driving home from doing the NFL show with those guys, he goes, I'm getting tired of that shit, man. I got to tell you. It, it has worn on him. But also just, you know, when he was a player and he talks about how various marriages failed because he would so, and he talks also about how he couldn't enjoy success and his relationship with Chuck Knoll, the late Chuck Knoll, the coach of the Steelers, who was an old school guy. And Terry Bradshaw came under a lot of criticism for not going to Chuck Knoll's funeral. And he said, you know, we never got along. He goes, he was incredibly hard on me. He was a great coach. And he goes, it would have been a hypocrite. You know, it would have been hypocrisy for me to show up at his funeral. We didn't have that kind of a relationship at all. It was tough. And he just talks at length about that. And I'm like, you know, good for you to this day. And he's found his measure of peace and happiness. And he's got this great ranch and his fourth wife. And it seems to be working out. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of pain and suffering in that guy's life that, you know, people didn't see. And especially in the 1970s when you were a quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Right. To say, like, you know, he'd say, you know, it was just an empty feeling. We'd win, and I'd go, well, now what? Is that all there is? So it's called Terry Bradshaw Going Deep, and it really does, bro. It really does. If I could do anything in my life, if God says, Terry, I'm going to start you over, what would you do? This is what I'd do. Please welcome to the stage the one, the only, Terry Bradshaw! How you doing? It's a story about my NFL career and life. When I was born in 1948, God made me a football player, and he gave me a strong arm. I like to throw that sucker deep. Steelers select Barry Bradshaw, quarterback, Louisiana Tech. Here is Bradshaw. Touchdown! Vaughn makes his perfect catch in the end zone. Number two. This one I think you'll love. is an Apple TV series, Apple TV Plus. It's called The After Party. And here's the conceit of this. It's another parody. Uh, this is a series. Uh, Tiffany Haddish plays a, a, a police detective. Now, there's a, a high school reunion. Dave Franco, who's a terrific actor, plays a guy who has become a huge rock star in the 15 years since they're all in high school. So he invites a you know, small group back to his posh house after the reunion, and he ends up dead. You know, falls out the window, pushed out the window, somehow dead. So now there's a murder investigation. In each episode, the story is told from the point of view of a different party guest. But depending on who the party guest is, the genre changes. So one person tells the whole story as a Hamilton-esque musical because he's into musicals. So it's another, like Rashomon. Yeah. But, but different genres, yeah. Meeting another, Hamilton, essentially. Yeah, and then, well, then in another episode, you know, the mousy intellectual, when she recalls everything, it's like black and white art film. And then Ike Barinholtz, when he tells the story from his point of view, it's a Fast and Furious movie. He's a, he's a rogue type, you know, guy. It's kind so of brilliant. It's really clever. It's called The After Party. Hey, hey, party people. Big ups to Hill Mount High. We started at the upper middle, and now we here. But for tonight, Mikasa, I mean, you know how the rest of that goes. Whoa! We're going to live forever! How did this all go so wrong? Pop star, actor, and celebrity humanitarian Xavier was found dead tonight. His body discovered on the cliff during an after party for his high school reunion. This is a murder. What? And finally, Ro, mm -hmm. you're going to love this. It's The Gilded Age. This is a new HBO Max series. It's from Downton Abbey creator Julian Fellows. And here's what this one's all about. It looks exactly and has the same music and kind of feel of Downton Abbey, except for it's got nothing to do with it. It's not a spinoff or a prequel. It's set in 1882 New York City during the financial boom 
in the early 80s in Manhattan. So you've got characters like the Astors and famous names, but it's not about famous people. It's just, it's all fictional characters, but it's about new money versus old money. And it's got all the types that you had in Downton Abbey. You have like the old money uh, type who is basically like the dowager countess, you know, dryly right. cracking on everybody. You have the know-it-all butler. You have the upstairs, downstairs thing where you see the staffers in the kitchen gossiping and having their own drama. And then you have the romances and the amazing costumes and production designs. This is the new Downton Abbey. This is going to run for 10 years, man. It's going to be, wow. it's a it's just, if you love Downton Abbey, you'll love the Gilded Age. End of story. <laughs> I'm wondering though, the beauty of Downton Abbey, though, is it picked up a moment in human history, and especially in American history, whether it's you know heading into World War One, and then what the aftermath of that was like. Yeah, from the British perspective, that Gilded Age era of the 1880s into the 1890s mm. is really not as much in the mind's eye of the American consumer. No, but I don't know if we knew that we cared about the Great Britain of the late 19-teens and 20s until we saw Downton Abbey. You yeah, know what I mean? That's I didn't true. think I, I didn't care. I'll give you one little factoid that you probably knew because you know all this shit, but I didn't know until I saw The Gilded Age, and this is all based on truth. There's a moment where a couple of characters say, let's meet in Madison Square Park, a mm -hmm. real park, right? And they go, let's meet at the arm of Liberty, the Liberty's arm. And the Statue of Liberty's arm, just the arm holding the torch, was on display in that park for like six years. Because everybody goes, well, wait a minute. France paid for the Statue of Liberty, right? Yeah, but they didn't pay for that giant base, the plinth or whatever the fuck they call that thing. <laughs> the Americans had to raise money for that. So what they did is they shipped the arm over, just the disembodied arm with oh, the flame. To raise money. And it was on display in the park, and you could take a picture with it for like 50 cents. I never knew that there was a Liberty's arm deal. I didn't know you could take a picture. That's something. Yeah, you know, it was 1882. I, you I know, know the rich like, people could. Yeah. It was not a selfie or anything. You couldn't do You couldn't <laughs> put it on TikTok. But but that attention to detail, and of course, when you're watching this and they're looking at it, it's probably a CGI creation, but you feel like they're really at Liberty's arm. It's size right. You it's know what I mean? Cool. It's like four stories. And it's just got a lot of beautiful touches like that where you're learning things without feeling like you're being lectured to. Well, that's the beauty of this guy, right? I, of I, Julian I, Fellows, And yeah. I, it is true. The, the old Downton Abbey thing. When it first came out, I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be like Upstairs, Downstairs, which my parents made me watch yeah. when I was a kid. And I was like, uh, I, I, I kind of got into it. But, you know, remember when that was on television, that was like a stage play on television. There was really very little. Upstairs, Downstairs. Upstairs, like Downstairs. PBS series. Right. Yeah. It, it, was, it was shot on a, a, clearly on a television studio. Yeah. It was like, basically, it was all in the family meets early 20th century Britain. Yeah, yeah. And and Downton just took us into this world. And it's it just, beautifully it's, done. And it's just, you know, we, we got maybe 20 characters, maybe more than that throughout the run of that series that we really were invested in them, whether it was, again, the kitchen staff or, you know, the extended family. And you get that immediately in the Gilded Age. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that one housekeeper, that cook has a gambling problem. <laughs> and that lady's maid is a schemer, just like Mr. Barrow was on Downton. And then you kind of, they kind of weave in that great historical stuff. Like all of a sudden, you know, they're they're going to see a, a fundraiser for the for the American Red Cross, which is just sort of starting out and things like that. Just as Downton Abbey would weave in World War One events and things like that. Most important question that we must now ask: Yeah, in the twenty twenties, are they dropping this one episode a week or is it all in one thing? This is HBO Max, so you usually got to watch that shit. You got to tune in. It's a Monday night. Downton Abbey was Sunday night appointment viewing. 
Uh, this will be a Monday evening program, and you'd say program with like two M's and an E, right? Right, like, and so it's on HBO, and then it HBO shows Max, up on HBO yeah. Max. Yeah, one of those deals. You know, they always say it's a new HBO Max. Series. It's like, you know, it just, I, I, to me, it's like, w- w- which one? You know, are you HBO, are you HBO Max, at least with, you know, uh, Channel 2. I know what that is. <laughs> wow. I don't even know what Channel 2 <laughs> is either. anymore. I, like, I, you go, I, I need to find Channel 2. I can't find it. Okay. On the cable. Dr. Rick, you're becoming your parents. Let's not talk about parking. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Road Rover Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Very great thanks to Tim Alanius and Renee Nelson for their help on this. And Demita Menezes, our long-suffering <laughs> producer. See you next time.